As we noted in our introduction, Galatians is Paul's fighting epistle. In the face of this creeping gospel distortion that was making its way into these church communities and a region known as Galatia, Paul pulls out parchment and quill and begins launching verbal hand grenades. He's adamant. He's strong. He's fighting. Not only is he active in his defense of the gospel, but Paul wastes no time throwing his own haymakers. By chapter 4, Paul has been about as transparent as he could possibly be. He's called these Galatians fools. He's said that they've been bewitched. He's even placed their slide into legalism as being on par, and we saw this last Sunday, with demon worship. I mean, Paul has not mixed words, and he's not convoluted how he really feels about what's happening in these churches, and here's why. In Galatians 4, verse 11, the last verse we saw last Sunday, Paul tells them, and you sense his pleading heart here, his passion. He says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. This word vain in the Greek, it means without purpose or without success. Eugene Peterson's commentary known as the message paraphrased this verse as the following. He says, I am afraid that all my hard work among you has gone up in a puff of smoke. This is a radical statement. For Paul here is conceding that if the result of taking the gospel into pagan lands was that these Gentiles now fall prey, fall into the trap of religious legalism, then he would have completely wasted his time. Paul's sacrifice, his suffering, his hard work to bring the gospel to Galatia would be for naught if religion supplanted the gospel. And here's why Paul feels the way he does. The move from paganism to religious moralism is vain. And here's why. Because religion fundamentally fails to justify or sanctify a person before God. Literally, Paul is saying, if a person moves from being self-indulgent only to then become self-righteous, that person is really no better off as their fundamental standing before God hasn't changed. And the implications of what he's saying here are profound. Like, think about this concept from an applicational view. Paul is equating the person engaged in immoral sexual activities outside of marriage as being no better off than the person who believes they're right with God because they abstain from such activities. Religious moralism. He's equating the person who uses foul language as being no better off than the person who believes they're right with God because they abstain from using such profanities. Paul's equating the person who never goes to church as being no better off than the person who believes they're right with God or earning points with God because they faithfully attend every Sunday. So what if you go from being self-indulgent to self-righteous? Paul's equating, for example, the alcoholic as being no better off than the person they believe, they believe are right with God because they abstain from drinking. And why is this the case? As we've already noted in our time in Galatians, what a person does 
or doesn't do has no fundamentally, fundamental bearing on their right standing before God. It's the essence of what Paul's been arguing about from verse 1. And here's the key. The Bible tells us that human behavior is not the basis of a person's righteousness or wickedness, but is instead the fruit of these things. I hope you know this morning, you're a sinner. Not because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Therefore, think about it in reverse. You are righteous not because you do the right things. You do the right things because you're righteous. Human behavior flows from a condition. You know, religion. Religion fakes a life that only the gospel, the power of the gospel, can really provide. For example, if you're dead, painting up your face, combing your hair, saturating yourself in perfume, putting on fresh clothes, it may create the facade of life, but it doesn't change your present condition. Isn't it ironic, and I'm going to get myself into trouble for this, but go with me. Isn't it ironic that the product we provide women who are experiencing the tragic effects of age, decay, and the gravitational force that pulls everything down so that they can still appear, despite themselves, young and beautiful. We call this product makeup. Seriously, makeup. Like the entire idea is to present a made-up persona that you're younger and more beautiful than you actually are. Now, that doesn't apply to our ladies because you're all fearfully and wonderfully made, but we call it makeup. It's a false persona. Understand, the goal of the gospel isn't focused on cleaning up the lives of filthy people or providing them some moralistic makeup they can put on themselves to be presentable before God. That's religion. But the gospel instead centers on bringing life to those who are dead through Christ Jesus. Instead of behavioral modification, the aim of religion, the gospel focuses on an internal transformation of one's constitution. You see, think of it this way. What a dead man needs more than anything, if he's going to avoid being buried six feet under the earth, isn't makeup, but resurrection. He needs life. <laughs> and that, is only a work that God can do supernaturally. The law is powerless to resurrect to life. Now this morning, before we get to our text, I want you to know the power of the gospel. It's this, and this is important to just kind of quantify. What the gospel message says, the power that resides is this. It says that you this morning, and I don't know where you come from or what you've done this week or what the deal is. I don't know, but I can say this with, with complete certitude, that no matter how you came here this morning, the power of the gospel states that you can leave a different person. That no matter who you are, despite your condition, you can leave transformed. That is what the gospel says, that he can take what's dead and speak into what is dead, life, that being you. 
Like, I'm not here this morning to heap upon you some weight of condemnation and judgment. I'm sure you're already keenly aware how broken you are. And if you're not, there's little I can do for you anyway. I'm not here interested in peddling a set of religious do's and don'ts geared towards making you a better person. Honestly, who cares if you stop drinking, turn straight, or quit sleeping with your girlfriend only for you to die and then enter hell sober, heterosexual, and nookie deprived? Who cares? Like I had, yeah, I did say nookie deprived, but we'll move on. I'm not interested this morning. Like I'm not here to provide you a few anecdotal life pointers aimed at making you a better you. Honestly, there are much larger issues that you need to deal with than becoming debt-free, shedding those unwanted pounds, self-discovery, or learning to love yourself. That's weird. Like, it's kind of a common big thing right now. Like, you need to learn, like, the solution is you need to learn to love yourself. Like, I hope you know that that is no more a remedy to your emotional problems than masturbating or self-love is to your marital ones. Self-love doesn't fix you. It masks the issue. Instead, let me tell you why I'm here this morning and what we'll see in our text is that the gospel, it offers you not anecdotal self-pointers or laws or do's and don'ts. It promises you this. It offers you this. It offers you a radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus who, if you will allow, is more than willing this morning before you leave to change everything. That's the gospel. That's the power that Paul is defending, that he's fighting for, that he's adamant about. Verse 12, Paul says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Now pause. Like that, the, that opening, clearly it's a transition, right? Brethren. He's going from fighting to just kind of toning it down, right? He's called them fools. Now he's toning it down. He said, you've been bewitched. Now he's toning it down. He says, you're worshiping deep. Then he pulls it down. And he says, brothers, brethren, brothers. Like, can't you hear the change in his tone? Whereas for the last three and a half chapters, he's been bare knuckle brawling with these Galatians. He's now pleading. Like that's where he's at now. He's pleading. This, this word urge, it means to beg to plead passionately. And, I, and as we'll see, no one pleads with another passionately unless you have a deep and profound love for that person. And what is Paul here begging them to do? He says, become like me for I became like you. Now keep in mind, there had been a time when Paul had been exactly where these Galatians were heading. Paul, Saul, had grown up in a religious culture, under the law. His right standing before God had been based in his obedience. And yet, not only had Paul found himself, through all of his religious adherence, this merit-based righteousness, tired and angry, miserable, but he found it to be sorely, sorely inadequate. 
And then what happened? On the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus and everything changed. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 9, Paul kind of elaborates on this point. He says, if anyone else thinks that he can have confidence in the flesh, I more than you. Circumcised the eighth day, uh, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law as a Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all of those things. I count them as rubbish. Why? That I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It fits totally with everything he's been saying here in Galatians. Paul is begging them to reject this notion of legalism, this legalistic lie that you can improve yourself, earn God's favor, knowing it only led to greater bondage. And Paul instead begs them passionately, reject that lie and walk in freedom. Walk in the freedom that I am walking in. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I became like you so that you could become like me. I rejected the law. I rejected this Judaistic traditions. I rejected it all. I found freedom in Christ Jesus. Now you're going to the law. Reject that. Come to freedom. Walk in grace. I've been where you are. I'm a better Jew you'll ever be. But for not. Because I found and I encountered Jesus and it changed everything. Verse 12 continuing. You have not injured me at all. That, that, that means like to act unjustly or to do hurt. And Paul's making it known here that he's not speaking to them as strongly as he has been out of like some inner desire of being hurt or offended. You know, Paul had pastored these people. He'd spent time with these people. He'd suffered to bring the gospel. Other people are coming in, tricking them. There's this lie. Paul's just wanting them to know he's not upset because he's somehow taking all of these things personally. He says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. According to Acts 13, Paul originally, when he had come to the area, started in the coastal region, but probably contracted malaria. And as a result, had to move to higher elevations, that being Galatia, as a result of contracting malaria, which is what makes sense here. He says, you know that because of a physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. I came to Galatia. Why? Because I had gotten sick. That's the only reason I had come there, because I had gotten sick. But he says in verse 14 that my trial, this physical infirmity, which seems to have affected his eyes, which was in my flesh, you didn't despise it, you didn't reject it, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out, <laughs> literally means to dig out your own eyes and give them to me. It's the same word you'd find, if you remember the four buddies bring their paralyzed friend uh, to the house of Peter to present before Jesus, but it's a packed house. They can't get there. So what do they do? They carry the man up to the roof and they begin to dig out the roof to lower their friend down. Same word, to dig out, to pluck out your eyes. They love Paul. Like he, he's referring back to their, their initial encounter. And he does it for three reasons. Like he affirms God's grace in, in a, kind of an interesting way, doesn't he? 
He, he affirms that God had acted in a very natural way to supernaturally send Paul to Galatia. Paul was not intending to go to Galatia, but God changed the plan, made him sick so he would go there. It was all an act of God's grace. And while in clear pain, Paul had preached the gospel to them out of love for them. He recognized God's grace being demonstrated towards them. But then the third point that Paul's making is that these Galatians, they recognized God had sent Paul. They recognized Paul loved them, and they reciprocated that. Like they not only lovingly accepted Paul's message initially, right from the beginning, but they accepted him. They recognized the sacrifice he was making. They accepted him, as he says, as if he were an angel of God, a messenger of God, literally. As if he was Jesus Christ himself. Verse 16, have I therefore become your, become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them, but it is good to be zealous and good things always, and not only when I am present with you. After reminding these Galatians of their previous interactions and the demonstrated love that they had for one another, Paul now asks them, and, and you can hear it kind of just rolling off his tongue. I came, I loved you, I showed I loved you, you loved me. It was awesome. Have I therefore, because of everything I've been saying, because of my passion, because this is a fighting epistle, have I now become an enemy? Do you view me as an enemy? Has all those things been flushed aside? Now you see me as an enemy solely because, he says, I tell you the truth? Speaking the truth, even when it was hard to hear, was not evidence. It was not to be seen as evidence that Paul no longer loved the Galatians or was now in some way against them, resisting them. No, in fact, the opposite was the truth. Understand, real love is more interested in saying the hard truth than it is in keeping the peace, coddling emotions, or offending. Genuine love will even risk the very relationship itself if the person's well-being is at stake. Paul threw it all out there. I'm telling you the truth because I'm afraid for you. I fear for you. Lest everything that's happened among you has been in vain, has been for naught. You see, Paul loved the Galatians enough to speak the truth, even when it didn't feel good or necessarily earn their approval. Which leads me to a question. Let me, let me ask, honestly. Is church designed to always be a pleasant experience? Like, is that the purpose of church, to feel good? If it is, then I can promise whatever church you're attending is not presenting you the raw and honest truth and is in all likelihood creating an environment where you're not actually growing. I'll go out on a limb by, by figuring that if that's the type of church you're looking for, more than likely you're not going to stay here very long because we're going to teach the truth. Whether it feels good or it doesn't, because we're more interested in spiritual growth and you becoming more like Jesus than we are in coddling emotions or placating to feelings, that doesn't mean the truth can't be said in love, but you know what I mean. Like more often than not, can't we concede this simple reality that there are truths about ourselves 
that we don't want called out? Like, can you be honest? You know, like, you don't have to raise your hand. Like, amen, brother. But, like, the reality is, is that if you evaluate yourself, there are things about you that you know aren't right, that you, that you don't want necessarily to be called out, like truths that maybe you would prefer to ignore. And yet, if the Holy Spirit is working in your life, more interested in transforming you into the image of Jesus than coddling, then shouldn't there be times when what you hear at church, the truth, shouldn't be pleasant? Like more often than not, the truth, especially when it's about me, doesn't feel good. It's upsetting, sometimes offends, but it's still something I need to hear if I'm to grow, if I'm to mature. Like consider, why are you going to church? Is it to have your ears tickled, your lifestyle affirmed, or do you come to hear the raw and honest truth, even if it happens to be ugly, if it happens to be uncomfortable, if it happens to be challenging, if it's a mouthful to chew on? Notice Paul contrasts his desire to speak the unsettling truth with the Jewish false teachers who are peddling this anti-gospel in Galatia. Paul says, he says, they, speaking of these false teachers, zealously court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. This phrase, zealously court you, it speaks to the motivation behind these false teachers and the message that they were preaching to the Galatians. The word means literally to affect or to woo. Paul is claiming that they were seeking to win their favor. See, instead of speaking the truth, which might offend, these men were framing the message in such a way that it would appeal to the largest audience possible. How does legalism manifest itself in today's churches? Like we talk a lot, have been talking a lot, the outlaw church model, the concept, we've been talking about legalism. But in a very practical way, how does legalism present in today's churches? Now, aside from the obvious, you know, the, the, the Christian do this and don't do that sermons, you'll find in many of today's churches that legalism, it exists, it's vibrant, it's alive, but it's masked itself in more covert titles such as programs, initiatives, or campaigns. Did some research this week just to see what's out there. Apparently, this is very popular. I found it on a lot of websites. There is now the 90-day tithing challenge. I'm not making this up. This challenge presents this. You tithe 10% of your income for the next 90 days. And if you don't see God work in a profound way, then we'll refund your money. Seriously, it's a big thing right now. I found one church that even provides on their website a tithing calculator to help you figure out what 10% 10 of your income is. (laughs) If it's hard for you to figure out what 10% of your income is, I'm just going to leave that there. There's another another campaign. Churches are doing this. It's interesting. Operation Andrew. You heard of it? Six weeks before, bring a friend Sunday. Have your church write the names of all the people they want to invite to church on their Operation Andrew cards. 
And in the following weeks, get everyone together and pray this simple prayer. Open my eyes, open their hearts, open my mouth. That's cool. It's a great prayer, I guess. And then invite your friends to church. And then there's a whole like, like this thing put together of what the pastor should say and the organization that should be in because that'll grow the church. Operation Andrew for a church that's not growing. There is the porn-free 30-day challenge. You can sign up, sign up to receive five emails over the next 30 days, all designed to keep you on track and help you break loose from your porn addiction. Quote, you make a commitment to be porn-free for 30 days and we'll help you keep it by building a necessary strategy for success. Either these people have never viewed pornography or they have no idea what that addiction really is. Five emails, that's the solution. Aside from these, you'll find the Read Your Bible in a Year you know, campaign. Get people in the Word, right? The 30-Day Prayer Challenge. Or if you're less spiritual, the 21-Day Prayer Challenge. And that one comes with a, a fancy hashtag, Lunch with Jesus. I think my favorite of all the campaigns we found is there's a pastor in Dallas, Texas that has the sex for seven days challenge to help fix marital problems. Sex for seven days challenge. I'm a young man, but I'm just saying, like you need a miracle. <laughs> you need a miracle for that joker to happen. Stamina. Or Viagra, I don't know. But there's, you're going to need help with the sex for seven days challenge. Legalism exists, it's vibrant, it's in churches, but it's, but it's camouflaged itself as programs, as initiatives, as campaigns. Now here's the problem. Well, all of the churches who employ these models are trying to get Christians to do what they should already be doing. The problem with it is that they're pointing to a program as the mechanism whereby a person can attain spiritual success instead of simple reliance on the transformative power of the gospel. Should you tithe, bring friends to church, stop looking at porn, read your Bible, pray daily, drink less, have sex with your spouse? Absolutely. But these things should occur as a natural byproduct of your relationship with Jesus and not the result of a legalistic initiative that actually doesn't work. Okay, Zach, if the gospel message is all people need, then why do so many churches utilize such initiatives, campaigns, and programs? And I know that's what you're thinking because as I'm preparing the Bible study, that was the thought that hit me. But I think there's a simple reason that our text points out eloquently. Since many churches are more interested in wooing an audience than preaching the unsettling truth, these approaches, programs, initiatives, campaigns are employed instead of the gospel because the law, it possesses this magnetic pull that fosters religious moralism while avoiding offending, oh dear flesh. Keep in mind, what the gospel demands is exactly why so many churches seek to avoid it. As Martin Luther said, a man must completely despair of himself 
in order to become fit to obtain the grace of Christ. Grace demands I reach the end of my rope. It demands I relinquish control. It demands I get out of the way. It doesn't give me room for any involvement. Grace doesn't include me. And tragically, for, for many, this, is, this proposition is a deal breaker. You know the law, religious legalism. In many instances, it does have a more mainstream appeal than the gospel for two reasons. One, the law. The law is quantifiable. Like, let's be honest. Trusting something to occur naturally is much harder to quantify than a checklist I can get to work tackling. Checklist versus this kind of mystical trusting faith. Checklist, man, I got it. It's there. I can put it on the refrigerator. I can look at it every day. Sharpie it on the mirror in the morning. But trust and faith, it requires something else. Something harder to get my, my fingers around. When there is a task to accomplish, hey, it's much easier to see progress and therefore define success. The law presents a dynamic where it's result-driven. I can do something and see a result and feel good about it. Whereas the law, it provides this mechanism whereby we can do something, we can see an immediate, a tangible result. Isn't it true that the corporal results of spiritual growth yielded by simply abiding in, in grace and walking in the Spirit, it's hard to see, it's hard to quantify. And yet, here's the problem with this approach. The growth initiated by the law, it's manufactured. It's inorganic. It happened apart from Jesus and is therefore unsustainable. Like you know, it's so easy to see all of the Major League Baseball players from like maybe 89 to 2005 that roided up. They did steroids. Like they're trying to attain growth. Now, steroids doesn't give you hand-eye coordination. Still got to be able to hit the, the baseball. But if you see pictures of Barry Bonds as, the, as a pirate and then as a giant, like in the span of like two years, he needed to bulk up, get bigger, get stronger, grow, right? And so he artificially did it. There was growth but it was fake. His, his dome got bigger, man. Like, it was weird. Just abnormal. And that's what the law does. It creates an abnormal growth. But you know the guys that have been off steroids for a while because what happens? If they're still alive, a lot of them have died. It's the untold story. But they, they have this growth, and then what happens? After they stop using steroids, the growth goes away. Why? Because it was fake. It wasn't real. The law wants to give you the PED, man. Bulk up. And yet, don't legalistic people, they, they act like they're on steroids. They're short-tempered. They're angry. They walk around church big and bad. Seriously. Their head grows too bigger than their body. They're compensating. See, the, the law, it manufactures growth. It's inorganic. It happens apart from Jesus, and it can't be sustained without killing you. Church growth. 
Let me give you an example of how this practically applies. Church growth. I can't tell you how tempting it is to employ an invite your friend to church day or a tithing campaign when you're a little church and many of your members aren't inviting their friends, evangelizing, or giving regularly. There's a temptation there. You look at the finances and you're like, so few people give regularly. What if we did something like that? Or no one's invited. We could do this. Like that, there's, the, there's the appeal there. And yet, because the Bible says Jesus builds his church, and it's a sustainable one because the, uh, the, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Because Jesus builds the church, a healthy church, a vibrant church, a true church, the elders and I, like we don't want to do anything to rob the process of you becoming generous or our church growing numerically. We don't want to rob that process from happening naturally. When or if we see growth, taking this approach of allowing Jesus to do it will ensure it was initiated by Jesus. It was a moving of God's spirit in your hearts and is therefore sustainable because it wasn't us, but it was him who made it happen. Now, now on a side note, many Christians find themselves frustrated because they have a misconception as to how we measure growth yielded by grace and the indwelling spirit. Many of you get frustrated because you look at your life and you're like, I don't see any growth, man. I'm trying to abide in grace. I'm walking in the spirit. I'm reading my Bible. Not because I have to, because I want to. I get it, man. I get it. But I'm looking at my life. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, I'm not seeing it. Why isn't this happening? And there's the appeal now to revert to the law. And yet there's a misconception on what real growth looks like. Let me give you an example. J.D. Morris, he observes this about Paul. He says, once his view of Christ was proper, Paul's view of himself began to decrease. In 56 AD, Paul called himself the least of all the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15. While in prison seven years later, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, marveling that this ministry was, quote, given unto me who am the least of all the saints. So Paul goes from being the least of the apostles to now the least of the saints. Ephesians 3. Then, shortly before his death, he testifies again, quote, in 1 Timothy 1, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You notice a progression backwards? I'm the least of the apostles, but I'm still an apostle, man, unlike the rest of you guys. And then like seven years later, man, of all the Christians, like I'm the, I'm the least of all the saints. And then of the sinners, man, I'm the chief of all the sinners. Like the closer he got to Jesus, like it all reversed. JD, John Morris, he says, as Paul grew, his evaluation of his worth decreased. As one draws closer to the light, he is able to see more clearly his own unworthiness. You know why we keep the lights dim? We're in a warehouse. That if the lights were real bright, it's kind of dirty. Hate to break that to you. Like we keep the lights low so we don't have to clean a lot. Like if it was those fluorescent, you know, migraine-inducing lights, man, you'd be like, this place is gross, dirty. Why don't they clean? So we keep the lights low so we don't have to. Don't ever buy clothes based on the evaluation of the mirror in the changing room at the department store. They mess with those mirrors, man. Like I'll buy a shirt and this, this ain't there no more. 
And then I get home, I put it on, I look in the mirror in my bathroom with those bright lights, and I'm like, oh, man. That's false advertisement. That mirror, I knew it. Closer you get to a mirror with the brighter the lights, the more your blemishes come out, right? That's why restaurants, you know, nice restaurants that are supposed to be romantic are like only candlelit. And so you're sitting there and you're like, man, I forgot how beautiful she was. It's not that you forgot. It's that she still is beautiful. See, Paul, like, like, what, how should you feel if you're growing? Terrible. Really. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you look at yourself and you're like, I am so unworthy. If you're feeling good about yourself, you're not in grace and you're not walking in the spirit. If you're feeling good about Jesus, you are. The law is all about making me feel good. When grace is more interested and about me enjoying God's pleasure. The other part of the law is that the law in addition to being like where I can quantify the results. The law has an appeal because it's gratifying. It really is. Because the law affords your involvement, it enables room for you to feel good about your accomplishments. Whereas, oh, the gospel, it removes you entirely from the picture by placing the onus on the complete work and righteousness of Jesus and not you. The law, the law affords you the opportunity to take credit for your moral advancements let me give you an example of how this works. Here's the problem with the read your Bible in a year and the 30-day prayer challenge, things like that. Even if you can actually follow through, you know, so you do read the Bible in, in an entire year, which is reading a lot, by the way. Success, achieving that, the irony is it doesn't actually change your heart about the Bible. Or, or prayer, for that matter, which it intends to do. Like, it instead has the opposite effect, because this is, this is how it works. It galvanizes you against these disciplines happening organically. Because it's a work not motivated by love. I committed, man, to reading the Bible in a year, and dadgummit, I'm going to do it. I'm going to plow through numbers. I don't get any of it, but I'm going to work my way through it. And then you're getting yourself through, you know, like Proverbs, man, I was, I, was, I was jamming on Proverbs. That worked for me. But man, then I got to Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel's a weirdo, man. Like I'm just, like I'm just man, and like I missed a couple days. So like I, I had to take an afternoon and, uh, and, I, and I power read like 10 chapters. I don't know what, it was a blur, but I did it. I did it. And then man, like December 31st, I read that last chapter of Revelation, man. It was terrible. And I'm so sick of reading this thing. You know what people who do the one-year Bible reading don't do in the next year? The one-year Bible reading. Because they're like, I'm tired. I'm wore out. Like, that's not the purpose. It's not the point. It shouldn't be a chore. 
or an obligation. It should happen out of a love for Jesus. Ultimately, the reason many churches use programs instead of the gospel boils down to the reality that the law is self-aggrandizing. Paul, if you look, he continues by explaining these approaches occur, quote, for no good reason, for no good, because, quote, they want to exclude you or to shut you out from the real power of the gospel that you might be zealous not for the gospel, but instead for them, literally dependent on them. Sadly, many of these programs are a trap because they demand dependence on the program or a new program as opposed to dependency on Jesus for their sustainability. You know, 80% of men who attend a Promise Keepers conference fail to remain pure within the first 30 days of making their promise. That's the truth. And yet that's kind of the design because the act of making a promise, knowing you're going to break the promise, it creates the demand to go back to the Promise Keepers conference. Why? Because I need to make another promise to renew the failure of the, the previous promise. Like, it's why establishing for yourself an accountability partner isn't a biblical remedy to overcoming sin. Because it's, it's causing you to be dependent on another sinner and not Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't have friends in your life that point you to Jesus. But looking to some other human being to help you fix you is just stupid. And it doesn't work. It fails. Verse 19, we'll wrap it up. Paul says, my little children, oh man, he's getting tender. For whom I labored and birthed. Again, until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now to change my tone. For I have doubts about you. We'll get to some of the particulars of what he's saying next week. But like many pastors, like Paul is evaluating these Galatian churches. And he's honest. He's honest that he had serious doubts about them. And you know what? I understand this perspective. Like, it's so easy to consider why it is that we, Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of God, end up behaving more like our culture and not like Jesus. Why aren't we as generous as he? Why aren't we as concerned for the lost as him? Why isn't there a passion for prayer in me or within us? Or why sometimes our time of worship feels stale? Isn't he worthy? Like, if we're called to love one another, then why are the events that we put on aimed at relational development poorly attended or setting aside an hour and a half to make church a priority so difficult? It's just an hour and a half. And it's in these moments, whether it's the pastor evaluating things corporately or each of us looking at ourselves introspectively, that the law, it comes behind us and it begins to whisper into our ear the lie that it can help. Man, I should be praying more. Why am I not praying more? And it's the law that says I can help. The 21-day prayer challenge. 
Or if you're like, I know this porn addiction is so counter to the life Jesus gave me in Christ, that he's supposed to be setting me free. Why am I dealing with this? And the law comes behind you and it says, hey, there's five emails that can help. You just need a better strategy. The law. For, for us corporately, it, it presents a lie. For us individually, it presents a lie. Because what does the law want to do? It wants to rob us from the power of the gospel. So we come full circle. What is that power? That you can leave this morning changed. How? An encounter with Jesus. Paul says that the only remedy is for Christ to be formed in each of us, which is only possible through his grace. There's nothing you can do to make that happen. Resurrection is a work of God, not a work of the law. The goal of the gospel and the reason Paul heralded the truth was that the ultimate solution to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, our spiritual development is not more of you, it's less of you, and much, much more of Jesus. No matter where you are this morning, no matter where you are, grace, it really does possess the power to change everything.